Here are the highlights from the latest episode of Free Talk Live. Visit freetalklive.com for the full episode. It's Ian here with you tonight. And Chris. And nobody. We go to Alu on the line here in New Hampshire. Go ahead, Alu. Hey, how's it going? I got a bit of downtime at work in a busy day. I wanted to respond to a caller, I think, last night. I believe his name was David. He asked why we think that the D.C. Empire, federal government in D.C. would not send in the troops and kill us all if we declare independence. I mean, you answered it pretty well, but this is a question that I've addressed a lot in in at least one of my books. In The Blueprint for Liberty, my first book, and it's, it's on Amazon and everything, and I always have copies on me. Towards the end of the book, it's about independence, and I explain why it's totally a non-issue. I am not at all afraid that the federal government would use military force to attack a state that secedes. But guess what? If they attack us and it's an actual military battle, if you go through the, the military games exercise, because um, I kind of did, did the war games of it, and I think hmm. we'd actually win that war. So the federal government could not actually defeat even New Hampshire, a small state, in a war, and I explained why in the book. I mean, even even if even if the United States sent in the military, there's nothing that says we have to fight back. Right. Like it's it's like this is one of these things that it's an assumption that somebody will fight back. And well, I think people, people would fight back. Die. It's I mean, possible. I think it's guaranteed. I'm, I'm not saying they won't. I'm, I'm just saying that there's there's an assumption that it would just because you've declared independence that you would fight a war in defense. Right. But that's not necessarily the case. Well, I mean, I think most people would because at that point they are ready for independence and then you have the tyranny coming in with, might with be. crushing violence that might be. and New Hampshire is well armed. I mean, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is it seems like a poor it's a poor argument not to declare independence because it, nothing, you know, if, 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 the, if the concern is, oh, they're going to come and kill us. Well, that's assuming that we fight back. Right. So or somebody fights back and they kill and, you anyway. Well, right. <laughs> right. So that's, if anything, uh, an argument for declaring independence, not for not exactly. declaring independence. So if, if your husband says, if you leave me, I'll kill you. That's actually going to chase her away more. That's more reason to leave your abusive partner. If they say, if you try to leave, I'll kill you. Right. Okay. It should I be. That in the book. That's a great point. But but also, the, the I think Ian mentioned in the FNHI survey that Survey USA did, it found that I think an average of around 6% of the people across the whole United States would support the federal government using military action against the state, the state that declares peaceful independence, which is what we're trying to do in New Hampshire and you know Texas and, and other states as well. So like, that's, that's another big reason. But I actually go through the actual war games. You go through an actual war, the federal government with all of their might and everything versus the state of New Hampshire, and I explained why. I don't think they could win that war. At best, it would be a stalemate. Afghanistan, 20, million, 20 years and uh, you know trillions of dollars down the hole and a stalemate. But well, best, yeah, I mean, look I at Afghanistan. I mean, what? like you said, they spent trillions of dollars over two decades, and they literally could not defeat a bunch of cave dwellers. So, Alu, how did you – you said you did this war gaming uh, where you kind of tried to figure out what might happen. How did you – run those calculations well i think on a very basic level the the things they could do to defeat new hampshire is either a tremendous bomb either nuclear bomb or regular whatever incendiary bomb and blow up places in new hampshire which one uh wouldn't work because they there's no place to target they could blow up the state house but you and i wouldn't need in mind that would be you know <laughs> i would help us out yeah. they, could blow up, they could blow up every house in the state which again it would be the worst 
um, PR disaster in history of all of humanity, and it would kill their own supporters as well, and right. Massachusetts people. Um, or they could do a nuclear bomb and kill everyone on the whole East Coast, including D.C. They wouldn't do that. That doesn't make um, sense. Or they can send in people to go door to door across 1.4 million people, most of which are armed, into their houses and try to kill them, which literally, militarily, they would not succeed. They couldn't do it. They would actually fail. Yeah, that, they, that they definitely seems yeah. like a losing plan, and you're right. So I mean, dropping a nuke... They can't go big with bombs, and they can't go door right. to door, so they actually probably can't win yeah. that war. The other big problem for them bringing their nuclear arsenal to bear is that we border on Canada, and Canada is not going to be happy about having yeah. fallout, uh, mm. you know, blowing I mean, over their border. That's about, a good point. What about the United States? I mean, we wouldn't be taking uh, uh, mass with us, and 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 Boston's. A huge, I mean, Boston alone's got one point something million people, which is comparable to all of New Hampshire. Well, don't forget Martha's Vineyard. That's true. I mean, you could not nuke. Uh, Manchester without taking yeah, Boston I out. The, I, I heard, I saw a video a while ago that explained all of this. The smallest nuclear bomb in the world, which I think India has a few and the United States has a few, the smallest nuclear bomb that exists right now would it would affect like um, a third of the world or something as far as the nuclear fallout in the air. We've got Riley on the line here at uh, calling from Utah. Go ahead, Riley. So I'm really excited about the fact that psychedelics are being decriminalized in Colorado. That's an exciting development for me. But I want to comment about this church in Utah that is called the Divine Assembly. Before you do, I'm curious. I want to hear about the Divine Assembly. But, uh, I mean, I just, I'm a little rusty on my geography out west. Is Colorado border, does it border Utah in the south? It does. It's on the east, it's east of Utah. Okay, interesting. All right, go ahead. Tell me about this church. What's it called? Divine what? So it's called the Divine Assembly, Mm -hmm. and it's a church that, allows for psilocybin usage as a sacrament. And I don't know how long this church has been around. I don't believe they have a set location for their, you know, services or whatever, but they are advocating for safe use of psilocybin in Utah as Mm -hmm. spiritual sacrament. So that, to me, is an exciting thing. I think so, too. Now, has Utah had any kind of experience as far as legal challenges to, uh, you know, the... The law on this basis, like New Hampshire has had this happen. It was in 2020, uh, December 2020, when a case went to the New Hampshire Supreme Court and was ruled unanimously in the favor of the individual who brought the case, who had been convicted at a superior court in New Hampshire of uh, possession of psilocybin, a.k.a. psychedelic mushrooms. And he was, you know, he was sent to prison for that, but uh, it was overturned completely. By the Supreme Court here, where the New Hampshire Supreme Court said the New Hampshire Constitution clearly uh, protects the right of worship, and that includes being able to worship how you want to worship, and so uh, they overturned that. So that's we're one of the few places where that's actually been acknowledged by the courts. Uh, anything going on there in Utah on that in that range? I haven't heard anything, no, at all. So. I do know that potentially coming up in the 2023 legislative year, they're probably going to be looking at using psychedelics as for therapy here in Utah. Wow. In Utah, of all places. I mean, you would think yeah. Utah would be a little bit uh, trailing behind the rest of the country you would think. On, uh, on these issues. I mean, yeah. Is cannabis even legal there yet? What's the status on, on that? It's legal for medical purposes okay. and for certain medical conditions. You have to get a medical card. Got it. That's, so... And the other thing you were talking about last night is mescaline, and there is another mescaline-containing plant called San Pedro or Wachuma. It's a cactus found in South America, I believe, hmm. 
and it's also used ceremonially. And I've had experiences with that a few times, but not enough to really say, yeah, this is what it's like. I've just had some mild experiences with it. Hmm. I've, I have Last never. Night I dreamt of San Pedro. <laughs> <laughs> is that what that line's about? So is the Divine Assembly based in Utah? Yes, it is. Okay. Have you met with these it was folks? started by, what's that? Have you met with them? Have you gone to, you know, meeting or meet up or? I have met them. I went to a festival they were doing over the summer and I met them. They seemed like really nice guys. It was actually started by a former Mormon mm. who was a, also a former senator. So that's just pretty cool to me. That is interesting. I'm looking here at their website. It is thedivineassembly.org. Apparently, they've been covered in Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, you can join the church. They describe themselves as as a magic mushroom church protected by the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Our mushroom sacrament helps us connect with the divine. Worship on your own or as an active part of TDA's healthy, interconnected community. Very interesting. Uh, Riley, anything else about it you want to share? Um, I, I don't have anything else I want to share about that specifically. I'm just really excited that that, at least this hasn't gotten any pushback in Utah. Oh, it will. <laughs> it will get some, yeah. definitely. Yeah, for sure. People Although, are afraid of this stuff. The interesting thing about Utah is there's a wild card, which is there's a lot of Mormons who would like to be practicing polygamy, mm-hmm. and they might recognize that an expansive definition of of uh of uh religious liberty works in their favor even mm. if they don't approve of the ends so partially it depends on how strategically they think chris cantwell is on the line here uh chris pretty fresh out of prison just got out about a week and a half ago uh at this point chris uh you called in to kind of update our listeners as to what's been going on with you and uh here you are again what's on your mind tonight so, uh, as many of your listeners will recall, I was involved in the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, in August of 2017, and there was a uh, civil lawsuit involved in that case, which I defended myself pro se in, along with uh, a number of uh, my co-defendants. You had called and, uh, in, actually, during this time frame because you had been removed from federal prison, sent to Charlottesville or that area, and you were in a local jail being held during this trial, so you were no longer in the communications management unit and you were able to actually make a phone call out so you had actually called us during that time to kind of uh, give us a rundown on what happened if i recall correctly the situation was basically that uh the people who had sued you were using the term you used the term lawfare where they were using the law using the courts to try to financially ruin you uh, over this uh, this event that uh, that you had attended, where essentially there's uh, some political disagreements between you and the the people who brought the suit, and if I recall correctly, the uh, the intention was to just basically make it so you have to hire lawyers, or in, in your case, you did it yourself because you couldn't afford a lawyer, uh, and uh, and you know bog you down with a ton of legal crap that you have to spend your time and effort on. Uh, what else was sort of the purpose of this? Well, I mean, that was basically the the idea that they're hoping to chase us around for the rest of our lives uh, trying to recover money. And so uh, to basically, you know, I mean, there's an article in um, Forward.com, the headline of which is, this Jewish lawyer wants to break the back of the violent white nationalist movement. 
And she basically went on to say that, you know, they have no expectation of actually collecting any money from us, but that they're going to make our lives miserable anyway, because Mm -hmm. that's the whole entire purpose of the enterprise. And so uh, the verdict came down at the end of November last year, uh, but the court still hadn't issued a judgment on that verdict. I had been making motions seeking more time because the communications management unit was doing as they're reputed to do and interfering in the litigation. And uh, six days after I was released from prison, I submitted my post-trial motion and final to the court. Uh, Today, the court came out and denied my motion for more time. (laughs) Of course they did. Yeah. They have not posted the motion that I filed accordingly. You can't sue me for violence and then collect a hate speech reparations consolation prize afterwards. Mm. You know, if you show up to a demonstration, you don't like the speech that's going on there. You can't sue me for harassment afterwards. And if you did, you get laughed out of court, mm-hmm. you know, but the jury found us liable on those Virginia state statutes without finding us liable on the federal statutes. And so I argued, you know, the verdict should be set aside because you can't, if they didn't find racially motivated violent conspiracy, that's the whole point of the case. Well, let me ask you something, Camel. Um, There's two different, uh, one you're talking about a criminal, right? And the other you're talking about civil, is that correct? Well, right now I'm not talking about criminal at all. Like I went to a criminal case. So these were two civil cases? No, it's the same case. It's the same same case. case. There's one civil action that contains six counts. Okay, understood. Okay. Some of these counts are federal and some are, are state. Is, yeah, am I understanding us, that correctly? They didn't find us liable on the federal counts, is the point, right? And they found us liable on the state counts, but the state counts are more permissive, okay? So the, 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 the federal counts, you had to find a racially motivated violent conspiracy, and the, and, the, and the jury didn't find that, okay? But the jury asked during deliberations, you know, the jury can send a question out to the court, mm-hmm. right? One of the questions they asked was, are words a form of violence under the First Amendment? <laughs> Okay, and so the court was obviously like, no, that's ridiculous. Go back, you know, figure out your verdict. Okay, and so they came back deadlocked on the first count, and it's obvious what happened here. Okay, they held us liable for what we said on the on the Virginia counts because the Virginia count said racially motivated violence, vandalism, or harassment. They're saying essentially that the demonstration was a harassment. Okay, that's that's first. Nonsense. I mean, that's yeah, that's protected First Amendment kind of stuff. Exactly, and so but. The judge, but but the, it's the statute is written ridiculous. Okay, mm-hmm. the statute says violence, vandalism, or harassment, and it's one law. Okay, so they don't like. There's not an interrogatory on the verdict form that says which one was it. All right, mm-hmm. but you can infer from the fact that they didn't find a, a verdict on the first two counts that what they found was not violence. Mm-hmm. You know, we showed that they attacked us. We defended ourselves, and by the way, we didn't do anything to any of these plaintiffs. You know. James Fields crashes car into the crowd. There's nothing we could do about that, but none of us knew James Fields. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so <clears throat> the jury comes back with this verdict and gives all but two of the plaintiffs $1 in compensatory damages. Compensatory is like what you're owed, what your actual damages are. And then hit me and my other defendants with half a million dollars each in punitive damages. We haven't gotten the ruling on their attorney's fees. They're coming after us for like $16 million in oh attorney's fees and costs. <laughs> and we haven't gotten the ruling on that yet. Wow. Yeah.
Well, I mean, either way, you are not exactly well healed at this moment. Uh, as I understand it, at uh, your website, ChristopherCantwell.net, you've been doing fundraising just to try to get your uh, your podcast back on the air. I mean, you're, you're hoping to just barely pay rent. How are they expecting you to pay even 100000 let alone, you know, a million dollars of an attorney's fee? And are well, they... these uh, civil judgments dischargeable by bankruptcy? So the um, the attorney's fees will be dischargeable through bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Um, the, since I have been sued for an intentional tort, um, the compensatory damages that I'm being held liable for, which is the bulk of the the number that we just uttered, um, that is going to be uh, it's going to be more difficult to discharge. Mm. But you know the the attorney's fees are the same thing like i said before if you sue me for a racially motivated violent conspiracy and you don't get that well you can't the fact that you spent 25 million dollars trying to come up with that you know it doesn't it's not my fault you know mm-hmm. you tried to prove a case you failed to prove it you got a consolation prize in the end and the idea that i'm going to be on the hook for what 17 million dollars is kind of uh kind of kind of out there yeah it's crazy so you know we're definitely going to be looking into an appeal the judge addressed my argument that they only could have found us liable for our words and address would be a strong word he just dismisses it outright he's just like no that's not what happened and then he just moves on mm-hmm. uh and so that's going to be uh one of the primary grounds for the appeal is that you know if you don't have the federal case, then you don't have a violent conspiracy, and you can't hold me liable for harassment when you show up and you stalk me in a city. You know, we tried to avoid these people. The whole point of, like, what we were doing was to try to keep us separated from them, and they did everything in their power to get at us, and that's Mm -hmm. their fault. It's not ours, you know. So If I recall correctly, you guys had reached out to the Charlottesville Police Department in advance of this thing and basically said where you're going to be, what your plan was, and you asked for uh, for protection, didn't you? Yes, we did, and that protection was not forthcoming, Mm -hmm. you know, and so, you know, this is... Surprise, Yeah, I've been to these demonstrations in other places, and the guys who I was with have done them a lot more than I have. And we always know that these Antifa people, you know, Antifa became on the tip of everybody's tongue in 2020, but we've known about these people for years. It's not like it's plausible that the feds don't know what Antifa is doing. You know, they're going and setting federal courthouses on fire and killing cops, for Christ's sake. So the idea that the feds are just like, oh, no, this is just an idea. We don't, you know, it's not plausible, you know. These people are being aided by intelligence agencies Mm -hmm. and what's going on. It's the same thing with all this Twitter nonsense. And it's it's dirty as hell, and uh, I'm not going to stop fighting it. Well, Chris, thanks for uh, the update here tonight. And uh, I've, I've checked out a couple of your blogs over at uh, ChristopherCantwell.net. If you want to see what Chris has been up to, uh, see if he's changed his mind about anything recently, you can find his recent episode of uh, Still Named Radical Agenda for Now, although it sounds like you've got a plan to uh, to change that in the future. That, that's right. Radical Agenda Stage 6 is going to be the conclusion of the Radical Agenda, at which point I'm going to rebrand and move on to other things, but I'm just getting started, fellas. So, <laughs> ChristopherCantwell.net, Stage 6, Episode 0, I sort of tell the story of, uh, uh, you know, going to prison and, you know, how we got here and what I plan to do going forward. It's an interesting listen for anybody's interested. Do you, uh, do you have a prison story you want to share tonight? Because, I mean, you can't go to prison for uh, three years <laughs> and, uh, and not pick up a few stories. 
You know, I off the top of my head, I, I gotta you know you gotta be careful what you say about what happens in prison. You know, sure. Uh, the, the the place the place where I was at was it, what was interesting about it. Even though they interfered in my litigation and, and made my communications very difficult, mm-hmm. the upside is that you know political prisoners are good to be around in prison. Like they're calm, they're not screaming all the time, they're not fighting all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so you know you get a bunch of like. Muslims and white nationalists hanging out watching the news. You know, it's it's really not that big of a deal. You know, we had a we had a pretty good time. So we're talking about this telehealth thing, and actually, uh, Jay in our chat room over at chat.freetalklive.com, he says they advertise Adderall telehealth all the time. They basically give you a questionnaire. If you wonder if you have ADHD, then you pay this company money. You get an online consultation and then a script for a monthly fee. It stops just short of saying they'll pretty much give it to you no matter what, LOL. Uh, so I know nobody that, uh, you know, you've been interested in, in this. Uh, I think you are a prescribed user of, uh, of Adderall. Have you heard about any of these online options? Have you considered them? Um, I, I have heard of them. Um, my, I mean, I'm more or less doing telehealth in that I just call in each month mm. and say I need a new uh, prescription. So, mm-hmm. and that's been saving a lot of money because it used to be that I had to go and sit in the doctor's office for an hour. Right. Every that's just crazy. And, yeah. you know, it would cost a hundred bucks or 150 bucks. So they um, don't charge you as much when you just call in? No. Okay. All right, no. good. But did you have to go for the initial consult in the actual hospital or the doctor's office? Um, yeah, I'm getting it from my primary care physician. So, okay. uh, so I, I do, um, she has seen me. So this is a little bit different than in that these people have never seen this guy in real life. They've never actually had to sit in front of the man in an actual office and have a conversation in that way. So it's getting it's getting even simpler. It's getting even uh, lower cost because what happened when the uh, the marijuana certifications or whatever the medical uh, certificates for that went online that that really just opened up uh, the floodgates for mm. for options for people because it used to be you would have only been able to go in your local area to find a doctor that would have been okay with prescribing marijuana under the state program and then the telehealth thing just completely opened you know the floodgates because now you can choose any of these online options the price of the visitation has gone down to the bottom of the barrel you know you can go and get one of these marijuana certificates from California doctors like through these online houses for 30 bucks 30 for 30 35 bucks or something like that it's nothing uh and again i don't know what the Adderall ones cost but i bet you they're pretty affordable too in the story here, we're talking about ketamine. The uh, man in the in question is a South Carolina physician, and his name is Scott Smith. He says he's got 3,000 patients, and half of them, more than half, are going through this telehealth route. Uh, and it's due to an emergency declaration which waived a requirement during COVID, and I guess it's still in place, for healthcare providers to see patients in person in order to prescribe controlled substances. The waiver has enabled the man to build a national ketamine practice from his home outside Charleston and fueled a boom among telehealth companies that have raised millions from investors. As the urgency around COVID-19 subsides, many expect the waiver to expire this spring. Companies, of course, are lobbying to extend it, and patients are bracing for a disruption to purely virtual care. 
Quote, I would not have wanted to do this if I had to go to a clinic, said Steve, a Chicago resident who works in public relations and who spoke on the condition his last name be withheld because of the stigma around the drug. Ketamine, he says, has helped his bipolar disorder more than any other medication. We'll have to ask Sarah when she calls in if uh, she's ever tried ketamine because she claims... Bipolar. Oh, she does claim bipolar, doesn't she? Uh, He said that, uh, and he wants to continue taking it. Quote, it's not, it's just not going to happen if that regulation changes, unquote. So he didn't want to go physically to a doctor. He feels more secure uh, maybe a little more anonymous or whatever, even though obviously you still have to give up your name and, and yeah. ID and things like that. But it's just being a little bit more disconnected, being at a distance, uh, makes this guy feel a little bit better about, you know, he's not having to physically walk into the ketamine clinic. Right? You know, no one's going to see him doing this. Uh, according to the story here, the DEA in 2020 temporarily waived the requirement that prescribers meet patients in person before treating them with several classes of drugs, from opioids to certain treatments for depression. DEA spokesbureaucrats said the agency's working on regulations to allow this permanently, but declined to provide details or a timeline. Of course, the best solution here would be to abolish the DEA entirely, but no one in Congress is ever going to propose anything like that. At least eight companies have begun providing ketamine by telehealth since the start of the pandemic. Between Just Smith and two of the better-known companies, New Life and Mindbloom, more than 10,000 patients have been treated at home. Virtual ketamine startups say they're making the treatment vastly more accessible and improving patients' lives. But many psychiatrists, including those who believe in ketamine's promise for treating mental illness, worry that having patients taking it outside of a doctor's direct supervision is a step too far too soon. I mean, it's not like these people are not going to be getting paid. Right. It's not like these people are not. It's none of these people are taking it in front of their doctors anyway. Right. <laughs> well, like, that's true. This whole idea that it's in direct supervision of the doctor is just nonsense. Ridiculous. It's, yeah. it's some sort of like that's not pill or something. The case, right. Because in a lot of these cases um, with depression, they're doing a 40 minute IV drip. Hmm. And if you've got an IV then yes, you are in a clinical okay. environment, probably. And apparently they're saying ketamine is is really helpful for people that have uh, anxiety and depression. And uh, we hear about this all the time, especially with young people these days, that they're always talking about how they got anxiety and depression. And so, you know, maybe this can help them with that. And why should they have to sit in a doctor's office for hours at a time every three months or whenever it is that they, you know, need to get a refill on uh, on one of these things or get the initial prescription? According to the story here, we're again talking about how the DEA has waived the requirement temporarily, quote unquote, starting in 2020. And they're saying it may be re-restricted as soon as this spring unless something is done uh, to extend this supposedly the DEA is going to, quote-unquote, work on regulations to allow the exemption permanently, but there's no details or a timeline about that. For now, there have been more than 10,000 patients who've been treated at home just with this online ketamine prescription thing. Now, the doctor they uh, they interviewed here, who is uh, Scott Smith, he says that the federal waiver should be made permanent, and is unbothered by critics who question the wisdom of mailing ketamine to patients at home. He says, quote, I'm like a medic running around on the battlefield taking care of wounded people, and ketamine helps the people that I'm taking care of, he said. 
It has long been used in hospitals for anesthesia and abused recreationally for its mind-altering properties. But in recent years, it's shown promise for delivering rapid relief to patients with mental health conditions who've tried conventional antidepressants without success. You know, the funny thing is they uh, look at their definition of abuse there. Uh, people are People take it and they feel better. Okay. Well, what happens when you take it under a doctor's care? If it's working, you feel better. (laughs) You know, there's, there's, there's not a big difference there except permission. During the pandemic, the government randomly sent me an insurance card. Um, But before that, instead of paying a doctor to get Adderall, um, I was ordering um, meth off the dark web. And the thing is that that worked out fine so long as I dosed it the way the same way I dosed the Adderall, mm-hmm. you know, which is about 20 milligrams, whereas people who are doing meth recreationally are doing, um, you know, sometimes they'll do half a gram in a day. Woo. So that's like, you know, 20, 25 times as much as I'm taking mm-hmm. um, or was taking. Um, but yeah, it, it, it so long as you're reasonable with dosage, um, you know, it's a good substitute. You know what people should probably compare it to is alcohol, right? Like, you know, um, alcohol is, is you know generally legal. It's highly abused, but it, it's highly abused, but yeah. not relative to the percentage of people not abusing it. I think you're right about that. Yeah, most yeah. people are, I yeah. would hope, responsible drinkers. Right. Most people who drink, drink, well, I'll put quotes in responsibly, but mm-hmm. responsibly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's a small percentage that don't. Yeah, usually about 10% of the users of any given drug will abuse it. They have a lot of requirements around the prescriptions of ketamine. According to the story here at the Washington Post, the FDA had approved a nasal spray derived from ketamine called Spravato in 2019 to treat severe depression. But that approval came with strict guardrails to ensure patient safety, a nod to known side effects such as altered consciousness and increases in blood pressure. The FDA requires that patients be monitored by healthcare professionals for two hours after they take wow. Sparvato, in addition to mandating certain steps for clinics and pharmacies, these safety measures may have unintended consequence, some ketamine scholars say. Rather than going through the extensive FDA requirements, more patients and doctors may turn to what is known as off-label ketamine, ordering the generic variety that the FDA has approved for anesthesia to instead treat depression. Ketamine clinics have opened up across the nation to provide the generic version through an IV infusion, which is, I guess, what you were talking about earlier, nobody. Uh, yeah, that was the original Johns Hopkins study. Well, was, now, uh, IV drips. And well, now, with a federal waiver of requirements to treat patients in person, more healthcare professionals and venture capital backed startups are prescribing ketamine in the form of dissolving tablets that patients can take at home. The growing use of off-label ketamine outside direct medical supervision has aroused concern among some psychiatrists who worry there isn't enough evidence to show it's safe. Gerard Sanacora, the director of the Yale Depression Research Program who led a team that pioneered ketamine to treat depression, said this, 
He said, I'm very concerned about treatments that deviate too far from the standard recommendations given by the FDA. I really do believe that is one of the major advances of psychiatry in the past half century, but we have to be very careful to continue to develop this responsibly. And, uh, you know, once again here, this is just somebody who's a complete inside-the-system person who says, oh, well, doctors can't make their own decisions with their own patients about what's working for them. You have to follow the FDA's rules. Yeah, I mean, and you have to really wonder, like, what's holding back? I mean, if this one doctor alone has thousands of patients, what's holding back a study? The only thing holding back a study is the government. That's a good point. Uh, I understand the concern, said Juan Pablo Capello, the chief of a a Miami-based company, New Life, spelled N-U-E, New Life, launched in 2021 to provide virtual ketamine therapy. He said further, what really I spend my time thinking about is suffering that's going on today and how to alleviate it. And we're not hearing about, like, some crazy number of stories about people going into K-holes from taking these right. uh, these pills. I mean, if, if there was an epidemic out there, you can better believe that the drug, uh, you know, the, the drug prohibitionists would be pushing those stories. Mm. Right? If somebody goes into a K-hole, which is what they call it, by the way, when you take too much ketamine, uh, that, you know, you go, you basically get tranquilized. Like, a, it's, it's horse tranquilizer, right? Mm. Uh, you know, when you go into uh, the ke- I don't know if they use it with cats uh, or with horses. I think cat, cats and dogs mostly. Is the horse tranquilizer something else? PCP. Oh, okay. Well, Which either. does not tranquilize humans. <laughs> what it, does it do? Uh, <laughs> uh, it's a very strong psychedelic, and, uh, and, and it can be nasty stuff. I don't recommend it at all. So, according to the story here, Ryan Magnuson is the chief executive of ketamine provider WonderMed. He said in a statement, quote, at home, ketamine has increased accessibility for those who may not have access to ketamine clinics due to physical location, cost, and time commitments. Further, these telehealth providers are trying to translate their patients' experiences into a scientifically rigorous proof that ketamine is safe and effective to take at home. So, it sounds like they are trying to do the study that you were suggesting uh, Chris, company websites highlight research findings alongside images of blissful-looking people in warm hues, though the scientific claims at time lack context. For instance, New Life cites an American Psychiatric Association publication that ketamine's effects are rapid and robust, without mentioning another passage in the same paper. Quote, we strongly advise against the prescription of at-home self-administration of ketamine, unquote. The association still maintains this view. But that's the American Psychiatric Association. Oh, my gosh. That's the same group of people that in this entire article, every time they interview one of them, they're always talking about how you shouldn't be able to do this at home. You need to be under their provision, under their yeah. offices, under their... And spending, paying them. Right, spending hundreds of dollars per session. Yeah, this this is the same group that says homosexuality is, uh, is a mental disorder or disease really? or something. The yeah. Psychiatric Association. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, there's a... Uh, and the way they, they get to their results is not through science or you know studies it's mm-hmm. it's through basically a board voting on what should be in it um there's there's no there's no science behind it so it's political it's all political yeah mm-hmm. uh let's see what else wonder med proclaims that over 90 percent of patients see an improvement in anxiety and depression but that is among those who have reported on their well-being and some 40 percent have not mind bloom similarly touts 89 percent of its clients report improvement for these conditions but the figure comes from a study where more than half of the participants did not report any follow-up data. I was under the impression that it used to be, you know, maybe 
20 years ago, uh, you know, you get a prescription and you wouldn't have to go back, you know, every month. Uh, to get it like renewed, like to see a doctor every month. And that was something that they implemented in the last decade or so. Um, Do you know well, about what it was before? Apply, that does not apply to controlled substances. You cannot get a refill on a controlled substance. Oh, so you always have to go back to the doctor every time? Um, or now you can call in. Right. But was, what was it before? Like a couple, like a two decades ago, was it that way still back then? Because I thought it, they changed that at some point, like in the last decade or so. Um, hmm. I don't know in that much detail. Okay. Hmm. Well, if you do know the answer to Chris's question, the number is 603-283-6160. A little bit more here from this story, the Washington Post. Again, the guy is uh, Scott Smith, who's the doctor they've been focusing on in this story. Uh, He used to work in an emergency room in the early 1990s, and at the time, he knew that ketamine was a drug that could be used to sedate patients. His understanding began to shift with the experience of his wife, who, after suffering from depression, had tried ketamine infusions. He said, I had supposed to do that while you're suffering from depression, not after. I think she was still I think she was still suffering (laughs) uh, from depression. But uh, he said that otherwise you're just closing the barn door after the horse is out. He said uh, he had lost the person that uh, that he had married. And he said that after her ketamine treatment, quote, I got my college girlfriend back. That was a life changing event. He said he describes himself as a person who gets obsessed with things. And uh, they describe the things that he's interested in. His uh, ketamine is his latest fixation. He closed his brick and mortar family practice during the pandemic to focus on ketamine by telemedicine where patient demand was higher. People began reaching out to him on Reddit, where he posts under the handle Ketamine Dr. Smith to see if he could treat them. With a federal public health emergency declaration, he could. It took getting licensed in states where the patients lived, though, he said. He went all in, obtaining licenses in 45 states in addition to South Carolina according to the Washington Post review of state licensing databases. His Louisiana license expired in May. In July, an Alabama law required telehealth providers to meet patients in person to prescribe a controlled substance like ketamine. Initially, though, he said it was like building a bridge while you're driving across it. Uh, His wife, Catherine, his medical assistant, added, we're really saving more lives than we ever did in our primary care practice. Smith estimates that about 5% of patients who come to him aren't good candidates for ketamine therapy, and he declines to treat them. More than half respond well, he says, of those who he treats, and he will prescribe ketamine for six months and then encourage them to stop taking it. Ketamine does, because, you know, in a lot of cases, some of these drugs that we've been seeing uh, that are quote-unquote illegal or recreational, they're showing a lot of potential in some of these studies that are being done on people, uh, we've talked about uh, psilocybin and mushrooms for treating people with PTSD. Uh, and I have they been doing mushrooms for depression? Nobody have you? I feel like I've seen some study about that, but I'm I'm not one hundred percent. Yeah, mushrooms have also been used for depression. Yeah, that's what I thought. So you know, we've we've seen some pretty interesting studies. MDMA also, I think, has been used in uh, some pretty positive results. And what they found, at least in the mushroom studies that that we've seen, that people that have PTSD who have tried every other, you know, sort of legitimate, quote unquote, medical therapy for it and failed have had success with one dose. 
of mushrooms. Yeah, you know, you know what else? I, it's interesting too. Is I, I mean, I don't know about this specifically, but I also am aware that with other drugs, in many cases, uh, you you can be on them for a couple of years and uh, and then and then not need them anymore. Um, right. You can you can just kind of wean yourself off and unlike and, and, antidepressants, where you have to take those for the rest of your life, in many cases. Yeah, quite often the mushroom treatment, as I understand it, uh, there would be three doses. Right. And that's lifetime. Right, because you are actually, in those cases, you're addressing the actual root problems. Because you don't want to just treat something like depression or anxiety with a pill that tries to cover it up, which is essentially what a lot of these antidepressants are doing. They're just covering up the symptoms after the fact. Whereas when you go in with something like a, with mushroom therapy, for instance, or perhaps with this ketamine, I don't know enough about it, uh, but with, with things like mushroom therapy, you can literally have someone cured in relatively short order. And this is something they've been, they've been studying now for close to, I think, most of two decades uh, at this point. And it's very, very promising stuff. According yeah, to, I, go ahead. definitely. Uh, according to the story here, by taking ketamine orally, patients absorb less of the drug and more slowly than they do if it's administered through an IV. Sarah, you're on Free Talk Live. Oh, yeah. Thank you. So um, it turns out that New, New Jersey and Philadelphia schools um, district, they are going to have masks mandate again oh god i'll tell you what i do want to hear about that sarah but first we were talking about you a little bit earlier in the show here tonight because uh we had this story about the ketamine clinics these online uh, ketamine prescription businesses that are uh, proliferating in the last couple of years and i'm wondering if you as someone who has you know revealed publicly that you suffer from bipolar uh disorder have you heard about ketamine as a potential treatment for that? And are you being treated for bipolar? Oh, no, I am not being treated uh, bipolar, but it's not required by Social Security unless mm-hmm. unless I, it's court ordered. They cannot uh, mandate medication or um, mental hospitals. I, I have to be um, nuisance to the public, like harm to myself mm-hmm. or to the public to be court ordered. So, no, I, I am not getting any kind of treatment. Would they pay but, for it uh, if you uh, if you wanted to be treated for bipolar? Would that be covered by your Social Security? Yeah, Medicaid, if I want to be on medications, but I, mm-hmm. I choose not to. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Just curious so because I, apparently this uh, apparently this ketamine stuff is really helping people that uh, that have the bipolar disorder. It's like helping cure them. I don't know. Might be, it might be something to look into. Well, you know, I I, I think I'm a If you're not cured, though, you don't have to earn a living. (laughs) Well, yeah, I got to call in today at the KKOB, the local station, and and I brought up that speeding cameras were the best thing that happened all this year. Did did they agree with you? Well, well, both of the the hosts and city councilor, Pat Davis, they kind of opposed it. But the thing is that... um, that um, the post said that he had to snitch out his son because he was driving his car, and so he had to pay it or make him go do four hours of community service. But it's got instruction to have have to snitch people out to borrow your car, 
and it's usually your family or people, your best friend. So you you better pay up. So wait, wait, wait. I mean, why would you have to snitch on anybody? Wait, you wait. Just, you're, just to clarify what you said, Sarah, you're saying that when people get the ticket from the automated cameras, it has instructions on how to snitch on who is actually driving. Right. That's correct. So in this case, the, the do you it get was, it, uh, Chris? It was, to where? Yeah. You, but why would you have to snitch? All you'd have to say is I wasn't the driver, right? Well, they want to know who really was, and sure, they want but, you to reveal that. I mean, they'd have to right, like right. force you to testify or, or uh, subpoena you or something in a well, court. Or they thing. can just convince you. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to convince you to testify yeah, against your, no, thank you. your, your, <laughs> you know, your lover or your best friend And what or if you don't remember or you don't know who the driver was? Indeed. Something else is quite disturbing, Chris, the story that you're going to share here about the Informed Consumers Act, which apparently has passed it was apparently rolled into the omnibus spending bill with a 1.7 trillion dollar uh, price tag on it that just got passed and signed yesterday by joe biden you know the one that's got the 45 billion extra for uh ukraine because ukraine. another mm. 38 billion wasn't enough they had to up it to 45 billion that's the one yeah so this apparently is in there this is what you're about to tell us about uh, it is um wow, so bye. If if you're in the politician market, buy a Biden because uh, really a hundred million in bribes and the Ukraine is getting at least a hundred billion back. Yeah, it's That's over a hundred ten to one payoff yeah. on your grift. That's over a hundred and ten billion now at this point with this new. Forty-five billion, and, and it's it's probably more than that because that's just the U.S. government, uh, you know, True. given that that doesn't include yeah. all the other governments right. who are doing it, you know, making contributions on mm-hmm. behalf of the U.S. Uh, government or are being pushed into doing it by the U.S. The government. EU, for instance, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. That's a good point. I mean, the EU isn't, you know, in uh, how do I say this? It's their EU has been more mm, haphazard as it when it comes to supporting Ukraine. Uh, especially places like Germany, mm-hmm. as just as an example, they were very uh, hesitant to to contribute anything because obviously it would cause a disruption in their oil supplies. And has so, and it has well, <laughs> that, and they know the danger of Nazis. Hmm, it's true. Yeah. You know, a lot of the Europeans are more aware of the Nazi problem in the Ukraine. I don't know if you were joking on that or if that was no, serious. No, it's true. No, I'm not joking at all. The Azov Battalion is a battalion of the Ukrainian military that is explicitly uh, Nazi. They're fascists. They're, um, in a lot of cases, they're actually the offspring of Ukrainian Nazi collaborators uh, during World War II, and they hold those people up as as heroes. Okay, because uh- Ukraine decided. Um, well, a, a number of people in the Ukraine sided with the Nazis during World War II, um, you know, and probably partially because they saw the Soviet Union as just the greater evil, but a lot of them are into that. Yeah, I mean, I know there was a lot of uh, collaborators, and I know, um, what was it, I think Finland, actually? Uh, was it Finland? I think, yeah, Finland. Finland had a lot of collaborators uh, back in the, Finland, yeah, but, the government was in, in in on the same side as the Nazis, if I recall correctly, because they were against the Soviet Union. I think they had a non-aggression treaty with the uh, with the Nazis, but I don't think they had anything beyond that. Tell me more about this informed so-called Consumers Act. 
What's what's going on with that? Yeah, so it got rolled into the, uh, I believe it's called the Omnibus Spending Bill, but the spending bill that recently Mm -hmm. passed. This Um, is where everybody just throws all the stuff that they want to because it's going to pass. Right, all the stuff they can't get passed, Mm -hmm. this is where it goes at the end of the year because the spending bill has to pass. Because if they don't, then the government quote-unquote shuts down. Right. Yeah. Retailers thousand pages in this uh, in this budget, so that's four times the length of Atlas Shrugged. Mm. They released it um, less than twenty four hours before they voted. On Sounds it. pretty typical. Yeah, retailers are scoring one win in the government's wide uh, government government wide spending bill, which will force online marketplaces like Amazon and Facebook to verify. I'm going to literally quote this right now because it's so ridiculous. High volume sellers on their platform Hmm. amid heightened concerns about retail crime. Okay. They're not going after the criminals. They're going after sellers and the the number here uh, well all right well, hold on I'll, I'll get to that in a that minute that ties back into the shoplifting story probably because mm-hmm. you know if you shoplift um a whole bunch of diapers which are surprisingly expensive you, most of the time the guy stealing the diapers doesn't need diapers he needs money so yeah. he then takes that to ebay to sell it it's it's not even necessarily like that's one way they do it, but there's other ways they do it. Like they'll return the merchandise for store credit, and then they will sell the store credit. That's another way they do it. Well, that is an option, but this is the newer thing that what they're seeing with these big gangs that are doing this in like San Francisco is they'll hire homeless people, right? So the gangsters themselves mm-hmm. aren't putting their own uh, butts on the line to actually do the stealing. Okay, they'll pay a homeless person a fraction of the value of the the products, or buy them some crack, whatever or, they sold, or, or whatever, or, right? Or whatever they steal, I guess. Yeah. Right? So yeah, they okay. go in. The homeless person doesn't care, right? If they get caught, they're just going to jail, sure. and then you know, no big deal. And then of course. As you pointed out, some of the prosecutors aren't even prosecuting if it's less than a thousand dollars. So they literally walk in with a you know a knapsack, fill the thing up with products from CVS or whatever. They walk out, they turn it over to the gang wherever it is their meetup is with the gang, and then supposedly the gang is moving so much product with this because I mean these these stores are trying to lock down all of the shelves. It's getting cr- really crazy. Yep, uh, they've got so much product. They've got to do something with it. They can't just take it all back into these stores. So they're going and they're selling them online. That's where this bill is purportedly, quote unquote, trying to help. Also, there's the new thing where they have to report um, every payout of six hundred dollars or more. Yep. yep, that's why they're collecting tax IDs and things like yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, this too. is this is but one... they don't have to have any transparency on the money that goes to the Ukraine because that's only a, <laughs> you know a few hundred billion. Right, that's that's buying weapons. That's exempt. I mean, this is all the more reason why we need more decentralization and people running their own websites as opposed to being on these centralized platforms, uh, because it ends up hurting. It ends up hurting everybody in terms of higher costs. You know, I think it's ten percent on eBay. Um, it's thirty percent on Amazon. Is it? It's more than ten. More than ten percent. It's got to be fifteen, twenty, somewhere in that range. At least fifteen. Yeah, I, I, you know, crazy. I'm not entirely sure what it is off the top of my head. It's uh, highway robbery. It's it's it's. I know it's high. It's it's yeah. it's absolutely amazing. You know what people are paying on these platforms. Oh yeah, and, and then, most people don't even know. And then I had a conversation with the buyer uh, on like direct messaging on eBay, 
and they're monitoring the messages and they are looking for certain phrases like address. So if you try to cut a deal with somebody through their oh, yeah. messaging I'm system, this. they jump all over you and they will ban you and they will not deliver the message to the other person. If you try to if you try to cut any kind of deal outside of well, eBay, you know you know what's interesting about that is if if it catches you, it, it doesn't actually ban you from the site automatically. Mm-hmm. It's just like it just says some sort of kind of vague message. It'll stop you from messaging it, that person, right? It will. Yeah. Um, but if you change it, at least the way it was working before, is if you change or remove that one word, it lets it go through anyway. So you can still you can still do it. We go to Tom in Texas. He's watching us on YouTube. Go ahead, Tom. Hey, Ian, thank you for your service. Thanks, and Tom. I know nobody loves crypto. <laughs> nobody is is not concerned in any way about sports ball. <laughs> um, so I, I He said crypto, nobody. Topic. I don't know if you heard what he said. He said nobody oh, loves I crypto. Oh, I thought he said football. I was <laughs> like, are you kidding me? No. <laughs> I, I thought he was trying not to answer the question or something or not to respond or something. It's like nobody does love crypto. That's true, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pretty uh, much everything the, uh, but BTC. Well, okay. I mean, whatever. But <laughs> I, I one of my biggest pet peeves is the language that's tossed around like it doesn't have any intrinsic intrinsic value. And I think that is just absurd on its face. Um, but like when we departed from the gold standard uh, with the U.S. dollar in the 70s, uh, people like to say that the, the, the dollar doesn't have any intrinsic value and all that stuff. I get that. But, like, it really, it, in a way, it does. Like, if we're going to be honest about this, it's the, the military is the thing that backs the dollar. And in that... You mean they'll kill context, you if you don't use it? No, not necessarily. It's just the value is supported globally through militaristic mm. force. Well, and, they will uh, kill you if you use it to buy and sell oil on the world market. Yeah. Yeah, uh, for sure. You know, that was Gaddafi and Hussein. You mean, if they, you mean they'll yeah. kill you if you don't use it to buy oil? Uh, yes, right. that's right. Okay. Yeah, and, and in those ways, they they pigeonhole uh, nations into using it, and 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 that we all believe is evil, and rightly so. I but think it's a stretch, though, does, Tom, to say that because there are psychopaths out there that will murder you or destroy your your homeland if you don't use their their form of money that that has intrinsic value i mean that's just no 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 i, I i'm sorry to, i i mixed it up it is a pragmatic view of what backs the u.s dollar that definitely backs it. I, i'll give you that yes the force of government yeah, yeah, yeah. the threat of violence is the backing of the dollar that's true and also right. your need to get dollars to pay taxes mm-hmm. like property taxes right. that can't be paid in any other exactly. way exactly You just heard highlights from the latest episode of Free Talk Live. You can download full episodes, subscribe to our podcast, listen live and more, all for free at freetalklive.com.